Hello and welcome to the 52nd episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we will be talking with Joseph Snyder and Chris Brown of Lannister Holdings, a company that's doing some remarkable things with blockchain and other emerging technologies. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. Hello. Thank you so much for having us on today. It's great to be here. You're yeah. welcome. You guys are doing some very fascinating and cutting-edge stuff with Lannister Holdings. That's correct. Yeah, I am, um, I'm Joseph Snyder. I'm the CEO of Lannister Holdings. And uh, our mission is to uh, develop, help build the uh, future of transactional technologies and logistic systems with, uh, with what we consider to be Web3 technologies, uh, which are cloud, uh, cloud native, cloud hybrid applications with artificial intelligent machine learning algorithms and uh, blockchain for data security layers um, uh, and uh, kind of Internet of Things focus where, where we can compile data and store it securely and act upon it uh, in, uh, in as close to real time as possible. So there's a lot of fun use cases and, and everything else. I'm not actually a technical person. Um, I am the business operations end of what we do. Uh, the technical side is, is Christopher Brown, our CTO. Chris? Yeah, uh, this is Chris Brown, CTO of uh, Lannister Holdings. I think Joe pretty well covered it. We're, you know, we're building the next generation of, of technologies on on all of the technologies at Joe State. Well, it was quite a mouthful, and you listed most every emerging technology that folks talk about besides nanotech and synthetic biology. So let's start to unpack it and think about how Lannister Holdings helps an individual client. Who's your typical customer and what exactly do you do? What sort of solutions do you provide? Well, there's there's a couple of there's a couple of answers to that. Again, we're we're a uh, a holding company. We're named as a holding company for a reason. We are publicly traded in the United States. We went public via a reverse merger in, in March in order to be listed on the US OTC market. So we are currently traded under the ticker symbol NBDR, Nancy Bravo Delta Robert. And the reason that we formed that structure, the reason that we went to market that way, as opposed to bootstrapping uh, our startup or as opposed to taking venture capital or even doing uh, a token offering or an ICO, was that we wanted to set ourselves up to be able to scale um, a multifaceted business model. And that model is about uh, ideating and developing products for verticals that we are close to and have experience in, um, as well as offering um, technology consulting and technology development services to enterprise clients uh, in order for them to deliver solutions for their own internal uses or for client products that they're looking to roll out and deliver. And so it is a broad focus, but we have put together a phenomenal techno tech team. You know, our CTO, Chris, is, uh, has, has a deep background in the space. Our chief development officer, Jonathan Parnell, has a very deep background in the artificial intelligence and cloud computing spaces. And so 
we bring together a broad set of skills with a very specific focus on how these tools get used together to create very interesting solutions for um, enter- mostly in the enterprise business space. But there's a suite of tools that we're working on internally, both in the fintech spaces around syndicated finance and asset-backed fractionalization tools. Um, and those will be directly uh, touching, t- touching the market, both on the investor side and also potentially as products for folks who want to issue um, syndicated real estate finance vehicles, uh, technological syndicated real estate finance vehicles, or folks who want to fractionalize different types of assets. Um, and, and again, we're U.S.-based, so that's a little bit different than um, us going offshore and structuring ourselves outside of the U.S. ecosystem. We believe that the regulations that exist um, in the U.S. and around the world, uh, a lot of time for structured finance, for syndicated finance, for fractionalization, um, for indentures, that that these things exist uh, for in, in many cases for good reason. Some may be onerous, but overall, we believe that the future of these technologies, especially as a suite of tools providing solutions to businesses and and creating new products that they have to operate within regulatory ecosystems. And those ecosystems already exist. These are just potentially better tools and better systems to run those things on. Um, Just like, you know, the stock market at one time was physically people standing on a floor trading pieces of paper back and forth, right? And that evolved to, you know, high frequency trading where you're trying to put your server as physically close to the data source as you can in order to be able to act on intelligence quickly. And so those evolutions of utilization of existing structures with new technology are a perpetual state of being. And we're looking to scale and capitalize on that with both our own products and things that we see having value and impact in these different markets. Um, as well as working with all kinds of different clients on the types of projects that they want to ideate and craft and bring to MVP and, and even full product. Right. And in the my last podcast with Jason Swanson, we talked a little bit about the applications of blockchain to logistics. And the financial industry is dumping billions of dollars into blockchain research because they see it as viable. So it has matured beyond the phase of being code toys for, I guess, nerds who enjoy digital money. Now, this is serious business, and it seems that blockchain inevitably pulls in all of these emerging technologies and sort of has to cooperate with them. So. I want to assure my older listeners that it's not just a word salad of buzzwords. Yeah, you know, so. there's, and it is a word salad of buzzwords, if you if you will, uh, <laughs> because um, there's there's a, a hype around these different segments for different reasons. But the the truth is exactly what you said. These technologies got the use time and the capital injections and the cycles that they needed to prove uh, ability to scale. And there is still, there are still constraints. 
on on transaction scalability. These some of these things are still being worked through today as we speak. And and that's okay, right? Because the progression of technology, the improvement of, of technology happens with those those resources being applied to the space and with those cycles being being utilized. And um, we, you know, I don't consider myself a crypto guy. I, I believe in the use case of cryptocurrencies and I believe that they're here to stay. Um, but with that being said, you know, we're looking at these as as operating systems and operating technologies for how to solve or improve real world systems and real world uh, data analysis and, and predictive analytics and, and action upon that, that, that data and that analysis, right? Um, and that's, that's the next generation of reality for these tech, the blockchain especially, right? IoT has um, a problem where it's creating all of this data and it doesn't necessarily have um, ways that it's, that it's utilizing those, those datas, right? They, you have a giant data lake. It's only as good as the utilization that you can, that you can get out of it, right? And the closer that utilization is to real time, the more valuable it, it potentially is. And so, you know, when we look at these technologies individually, they each do very, very cool things in specific spaces. But when we look at them from an experienced set of people who know how they get built and who know what the problems and pain points and friction is in getting those things deployed, and we look at them as an ecosystem of things that together can help support the, the potential uh, weaknesses within the different technologies or uh, fulfill the different operational segments that one technology may lack or may not uh, apply to, it becomes very, very, very powerful. And we're looking at a three-year, five-year, 10-year roadmap of how these technologies interweave themselves into commerce and interweave themselves into systems and operations and payment streams and, and financial compliance and financial verification and financial remittance. Um, and it's a very, very, very interesting space. It's a matrix of word salads. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, you talk now. <laughs> I think you're doing a fine job. <laughs> well, I'm having fun doing it anyway. So. He's <laughs> doing a great job. So... Real estate is one area that you guys seem to be focused on. Was that what initiated this venture? Was it the initial spark? How exactly did you envision Lannister Holdings at the outset? Um, you know, at the at the outset, we definitely saw how these how these technologies uh, apply to real estate. Um, you know, our family has a deep investment history in real estate. Chris and I have both invested in real estate for as long as either of us can remember. Um, and so that was a, a very clear use case that we saw with this. We also come from a risk management background. Um, you know, we, we built a risk management agency over almost a decade and, and exited, a, Chris and I, uh, and exited a few years ago. And so we, we, we saw several different verticals that these technologies are going to have some really 
fun and impactful and profitable disruption segments in. Um, real estate was our, and, and probably is, our headline on that, um, primarily because we wanted to be able to come to market with something that people could understand. You know, saying a, a matrix of, of, of buzzword salads normally does not get you a lot of engagement and, and, and understanding from the general public, right? That's all these acronyms. You know, it's like going and sitting on a military base for an hour as a civilian. You don't know what was just said. And so we wanted to take uh, an area of the business that people understood and say, look, you know, real estate's a great example. You know, you have all of these middlemen, you have all of these things that need to be verified and validated and checked and insured and packaged and 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 have interest rates applied and amortizations and, and all of these different segments. And then there's a whole ecosystem of business that happens after that transaction of loan packaging and mortgage backed securities and reselling and, you know, in, you know, all these kind of um, interparty deals on the back end. And people get that. Right. We've all gotten a mortgage and paid the payment for a couple of months. And then we get a letter in the mail. Hey, ABC Financial no longer owns your loan. Now it's XYZ Financial. You make the payment for the same amount. You send the payment to the same place, probably. But somebody else owns your loan. You go, yeah, OK, whatever. As long as I'm making the same check. Right. Um, and so it was it was a very understandable market that I think the general public can grasp, because the fact of the matter is, is we all have a cell phone. And we can all open up Angry Birds and we can pull the little red bird back. It can fly forward. It can hit the green pig. We, we all do that. But very, very few people actually understand what technologies, what types of chips and, and what, what systems and, and, and software is running inside of that to make all of those experiences happen. And part of our focus and part of our mission is education right? It's educating the public. It's also about educating the next generation of youth. My daughters are 13 and 11. And I'm very interested in making sure that their education includes an understanding on uh, programming, an understanding on machine learning and, and how these things work so that they're empowered with skill sets for the future um, with the next generation. And education, in my opinion, as somebody that... Um, is very self-taught. <laughs> I'm a bookworm. Um, education is very, very much about being able to grasp a concept and then dig into it, right? Because curiosity has a tough time getting traction if there's no place for it to grasp on and say, I understand this. I see how this impacts something. Now, what are the other pieces of this? How does this move forward? What else does this disrupt? And you know, is there a potential for me to impact this or use this for, for wealth or use this for the betterment of society, you know, those questions have to be asked once somebody gets a concept. And real estate was a, an avenue. It, it is absolutely a business-focused vertical for us, but it was, it was also an avenue for us to be able to engage with the public and say, these things have real-world application. This isn't just, you know, a bunch of geeks who like digital money, which, by the way, we all like digital money because all of us have B of A or Wells Fargo or Chase or some kind of an account that has a very digital reality for our dollars, right? Yes, most of us do, although some of us are broke. <laughs> I don't know. I heard podcasters were getting rich this year. Uh, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> hmm. So long term... Which industries do you expect to impact the most? 
I think supply and logistics is is up is ripe for a massive amount of disruption over the next five to ten years. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on fintech and and the transfer of money and how we handle that, right? Because there's a lot of pain points in how do you transfer money between people? How do you transfer money internationally? How do you do large investments? How do you track, you know, uh, fractionalization of assets and all of that stuff? But there's a lot of focus on that already. So I, I think our disruption points are much more about actual, you know, uh, medium to enterprise level business use cases, uh, deploying AI type technologies and ML and, and integrating IoT solutions and really increasing efficiencies throughout an ecosystem that's already processing, already making money, already a profitable endeavor, and just taking those to the next level and really growing, you know, what people are already doing. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of disruption there, and I think a lot of that has to do with supply and logistics, right? Because you have a lot of delayed payment times, you have a lot of negotiation points where people aren't sure that the delivery is coming through or the delivery is exactly what it said it was based on quantity or quality or you know whatever other metrics you're looking at um so there's a lot of pieces there on both a you know a national and an international level that there are a lot of points that can be disrupted a lot of points that can be done more efficiently and and just plainly done better through the uses of of newer technologies and emerging technologies well, certainly a massive market, so there's no lack of money to be made there. Yeah, there's no lack of money to be made, but there's also no lack of money to be invested, right? So, I mean, there's you can focus on, on revenue and profit, but really it comes down to how much money is, is willing to be invested in new technologies. And you're talking about somewhat stagnant sort of uh, enterprises, right? So if you... If you if your grandpa started a shipping company and now you have you know four or five super tankers that are cruising the world and you know you're living quite nicely, are you do you really have the impetus to go and invest that capital to find the next level of of efficiency for that business, right? So you you have to find the people that are the that are the thought leaders in the space, the people that are looking at it and saying, how can we do this at the next level? What does this look like in 10 years? And the reality is that those people, A, they exist, but they are well-funded and able to make those investments because they know that over the next decade, over the next two, three decades, that they're going to have a very large income stream to make up for uh, the investment itself and the risk of the investment, right? So if they go and put... Uh, X amount of dollars into creating a new system that completely changes the way that that a supplier logistics chain works. Um, you know, there's potential for a massive amount of of revenue there. There's there's a uh, there's potential for them having the IP of creating the new system that becomes the system that is used for you know some some minor majority of the of the players in their specific market. But there's also the potential that their their system is only used by them, right? You have to get buy-in from everybody else if you're doing transactional transactional systems and changing the way that transactions happen between multiple um, multinational corporations. So there's there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of pieces there. So you have to find the you know the people who are interested in, in being the leaders of the technological revolution. But those are the people that are going to win over the next couple of decades. Which means 
one hurdle, one obstacle, is the complacency of the aristocracy, which sounds like something out of Thorstein Veblen, convincing that shipping magnate's great-grandson that he can own three yachts instead of two. <laughs> right. I, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or, you know, convincing him that his family will go broke in, in four generations instead of two. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, you're, 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 you're selling to the ego of being first and being unique in a dynastic, you know, reality. Um, but in, in many cases, what we're seeing first and foremost is the 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 fact is is that we are looking at some problems in some verticals and 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 working to ideate and build solutions that we own because we see the holes um and in other cases we're engaging with partners and prospects on ideating and helping to build holes that they see in verticals that we have in many cases never touched before and um, that's not only an incredibly impactful growth experience for us and our teams and a massive value add and potential wealth play for those corporations, um, but it also allows us to have the, the power of coming to market and saying, we're, we're bimodal, right? We're, we're, we're not just hoping that other people have ideas that they need built. And we're not just sitting here trying to build ideas that we think are a good idea. We're, we're attacking both and we're trying to serve industries that we don't know internally by joining forces with folks who want to do amazing things. And also um, using the talent and business acumen and experience um, of our brilliant and beautiful team members to um, build out the, the products that we see having great product market fit, making a, a difference, making nice profits, uh, reducing uh, impacts, reducing carbon footprints, reducing paper utilization, you know, all of these, all of these uh, ancillary benefits to just making a buck or, or a Bitcoin, if you will. And um, so that that's kind of our plan for, for how to avoid that, that problem. Um, and also it's, it's a focus of ours is building out this library of intellectual property uh, over time as, as our company, as a, as a real basis of value and, and revenue for our stakeholders. So it sounds like your clients sometimes recognize issues with their companies and other times, once you have your foot in the door, you point out some issues too. We would be working to sit down with that customer and they're coming to us and saying, hey, we think this can be done better. And then our teams sit down and go, all right, and do a deep dive and work with those stakeholders and work with those participants inside of their, their industry to identify how these pieces do potentially fit together and, and, and help them to get a roadmap that shows them the way to build the thing that they want. And, and then, you know, ultimately for us, the goal is to work with them and build that and, and deploy it and, and impact that disruption in the real world where I, where it's not just a think tank, but it's, it's an action. It's an action tank. Do you have any particularly remarkable stories of success? Uh, well, Chris has a very interesting definition of success. 
the definition of success. What is that? The uh, success is moving from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be an interesting way to pitch your services to clients. You know, success, uh, success is a really loaded word, right? There's, we all know of, of multimillionaires who are completely unhappy and unfulfilled. And we formed Lannister with um, an ideology of lifestyle by design. We formed Lannister around the ideology of being a completely remote work company. As far as we know, we're the only seed to public completely remote work company in America. And, you know, um, we did that consciously, um, you know, with, stoic mentalities and with a lean operating ideology um, and mentality because we believe that success is a variant um, of perception. And so when we're looking at successful projects and we're looking at successful products, I mean, as a for-profit company, you know, we have to generate revenues and generate revenues in excess of, of our cost basis, right? That's, that's, the world that we live in and and the aims that we have for our entity and our stakeholders, which include ourselves. But success is also about being able to educate a market and being able to um, add value inside of an ecosystem, even if it's maybe not attached to an external dollar, right? Maybe a company's just um, improving internal systems and, and having some cost savings. And success for us on products is on identifying holes correctly and and building really cool solutions. Um, It's also allowing our team to enjoy the life that they're that they're living and live where they want and work when they want. As long as we're all hitting our deliverables and 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 completing our tasks, that's a very successful venture. As you mentioned a few rounds back. Risk management is, or improved risk management is one thing that blockchain gives us. And the other, in theory, is improved liquidity, which in some ways is analogous to the introduction of derivatives and future forwards back in the early 20th century, which no doubt revolutionized finance and commodities. And it's why. A cup of coffee today costs as much as it does six months from now. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, it's still to be seen how how that liquidity ends up moving. You know, the the real world uses that we see today are are primarily in the reduction of or removal of verification needs that cause payment delays. Right. Every time there's a net 30 or a net 60 or, a, you know, a net 30 after FOB or whatever those cases are inside of a logistic supply chain, you have a cost of operating capital that's tied up for a, for a specific amount of time. Right. And so that adds a layer of expense and it also adds a layer of um, illiquidity inside of these systems. And if you look at that as a global issue, you're, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars in liquidity uh, that's tied up at any given time um, because of a lack of actionable data. So it will be interesting to see where those capital flows end up going and, and how those particular industries get get disrupted um, through the next three to five years. 
Lannister development takes a holistic approach to optimization instead of focusing on a single process. So it's this great spider web of all the interconnecting factors. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 certainly an effort, right? If if you want to if you want to live differently, you have to do things differently. You have to find a new way forward, and that is what we're attempting to achieve here. And honestly, we're achieving it. Our our employees, our teams are are very happy, and they really enjoy what they do, and they enjoy the way we do it. Um, you know, we we're all very connected and very very regularly in, in engaged and involved between all the projects and you know all the Slack channels and all the chats and all everything else that happens during the day. So we've we've maintained a good amount of communication and connection throughout the company, but there's no requirement of everybody to be in it. You know, eight in the morning and leave at five p.m. or you know everything's deliverable based. Everything's time based. So you know do do what you're supposed to do. Do what your job is. Do what you want to be doing. Right. Because we're looking for people who enjoy what it is that they they do, and we need what they do, and do it on your time, right? If you want to go to your son's baseball game or whatever it is you have that afternoon, you shouldn't be worried about work in the middle of enjoying your family time, right? And you shouldn't necessarily be worried about work if it's three in the afternoon and you have something else to be doing. You should only be worried about work really as long as you know what your deliverables are and you're working towards them. And that's the entire point right there, right? As long as we're meeting expectation and achieving our goals and making clients happy and producing products that make the market happy, then there's no reason for us to be adding stress or, or worry to the lives of the people who work for us. Just the opposite. We should be making their lives better at every turn. And running a company in this manner, while a bit different and a bit of a planning endeavor, right? Because you have to find a way for everybody's deliverables to match up with their life schedule and everybody's deliverables to match up with everybody else's deliverables so that things actually get done on time. But once you start to get those processes in place, I mean, once you start to understand what those flows look like between the different departments and the different people in those departments, then it really just becomes a matter of making sure that everybody remains connected and, and, and that communication remains very clear and at a high level. Um, you know, and, and like you said, it's, it's a spider web. Yeah. It's not, it's not just a, it's not just a top down hierarchy. It's not like, you know, Joe or I just command everything that gets done and then tell everybody, well, you have, you know, this needs to be done today and that needs to be done tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. No, say, you know, this is, here's our, here's our, I'm from the development side. Here's, here's our sprint outlines, right? Here's, here's our two week goals going forward for the next six months on X project. We need to make sure that you know what your piece is and you know what your piece is inside that two-week sprint and how it fits with everybody else's piece and when your deliverables are expected. And as soon as you know what those are and as soon as you agree to them and say that, yes, I can do those, yes, I'll take those on, everything flows smoothly. Now there's, you know, there's hiccups and there's problems there. Sometimes people get sick or people have family issues. You know, you have to, you have to deal with life still. It's not just some magical way of, of getting everything in the world done, but as those things come up, you know, it's expected that everybody's somewhat uh, multi-able or, you know, I'm not sure what the good word there is, 
but everybody's able to somewhat take on the tasks of everybody else, right? So our developers, while they're they're very good at their specific task, are also decently able to handle somebody else's task if need be, right? So if you have a Golang developer and he gets sick for the day, well, you know, one of the other developers on the team will be able to finish his piece of that sprint without too much problem. And that's sort of the idea too, right? You need overlap. You need you need to be able to hit those deliverables whether or not that exact person hits the deliverable or not. So I hope that all somewhat makes sense. Sure. It sounds like you're sort of decentralizing the task. It's just the task needs to get done. Yeah, exactly. And that's one other point is the advantages of decentralizing loans yeah I mean if you can you know if you can really decentralize loans without massively increasing the risk and you you put yourself in a position to really be able to move forward in the world of, of finance especially the micro micro uh, cap type finance right so if we look at just personal lending um, the ability for an individual consumer to get credit, uh, it depends where you are in the world and depends on your position in life and your financial position, etc. Um, but that's really dependent on a single entity allowing you to get that credit. So let's say, you know, someone comes along, they have a, this is a very American view that I'm going to put forward here, because this is the system that I know, obviously. But let's say that they have a 700 credit score and they make $50,000 a year or something, they can go to three or four different banks and two of those are probably going to give them credit without even checking their income or anything because you have a 700 plus score and a decent income on paper. Yeah, here's free money. Well, not free, you know, it costs, but here's money. And then two of those are probably going to check their income or give them more hassle, etc. But if you go down from there, right, if you start dropping into the 600 range, maybe the 500s, then suddenly it's zero of those banks are just going to hand you money. They're all going to ask for proof. They're all going to ask for income statements. They're all going to ask for proof that you pay your rent on time, et cetera, et cetera. And that's basically how the system has been designed to work, right? The credit scores are a credibility rating, right? It's whether or not you are probably going to pay back. And as you decentralize those pieces, you reduce risk to the institutions themselves, because now you're not going to one institution and saying, well, I need $50,000. Can you hand me this $50,000? And they're looking at your credit and saying, well, you only make 30000 and you haven't actually paid back all of your previous debts. So probably not. But instead, you go to a decentralized marketplace and say, I need $50,000. Here's the reason. And here's, you know, here's. Here's my wallet address that shows transaction abilities and you know recent transactions that account for my ability to pay this back over the next five or ten years. And suddenly you have a hundred or two hundred or three hundred actors who are each putting in, you know, a couple hundred dollars. So their risk basis is really small compared to the amount of interest that they're gonna get, and their risk basis based on the amount of actual funds that they're loaning over time, right? Because now you're talking about a single loan of five hundred dollars. And then multiples of those, hundreds of those, in place of a single loan of fifty thousand dollars, which could eat up a massive portion of a smaller lender's uh, ability, uh, capital abilities. And then you can scale that same point to basically any point you want, right? So again, if we talk about oil and gas, you know, you're looking at let's say a a an oil tanker is coming across and it has fifty million dollars worth of oil on it, right? 
Well, there's a letter of credit on file that's handling the payment streams between between the shipper and the receiver. There's $50 million of credit going back and forth there at some decent interest rate, somewhere in the 8 to 12 range. And that's a lot of risk for a single bank, right? There's $50 million of their money is tied up in this one boat that's out there at sea. Who knows what can happen? So as you decentralize that piece, and now you say, okay, well, instead of $50 million on one bank, now we have, you know, 100 different investors that are each putting up $500,000. So the risk basis to the investors themselves is greatly decreased because, you know, obviously they can have their money in 10 or 100 boats now instead of on a single boat. And then the actual cost to the to the shipper or the receiver, whoever has the line of credit in that situation, depending on where you're going and what's happening, their interest rates potentially, and that depends on the market, but potentially could also be decreased, right? Because the individual lender's risk itself is decreased, so they need to charge less money to cover their overall risk basis. So even at, at any scale like that, decentralization is, is a potential boon to all of these industries. Anybody that uses credit, essentially. Absolutely. And according to your website, decentralized lending could also combat crime on the dark web. Crime on the dark web. <laughs> That's always a fun topic. <laughs> That's always a, always a fun topic. You know, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of value to adding security and transparency to systems. You know, a lot of the <clears throat> a lot of the fees that people pay, right? A lot of the fees that are built into the way we do business can to great degrees be mitigated or removed completely um, moving forward. And that's not great for some parties, right? There are there are very wealthy interests that, um, you know, deploy these traditional systems and um, continue to reap great rewards from providing the middle. And, you know, but that's not necessarily good for the system. It's definitely not good for the end, you know, users and consumers. And potentially that capital has a better placement being utilized by the other participants in, in the ecosystem than it does by uh, a select few continuing to continually generating outsized returns by being the access to, to those um, lines of credit being the, the access to those verification systems. Then Lannister's revenue model is essentially just working with clients. Well, it depends on it depends on the user identity of the client, right? We we are focused on on um, technical education in 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 the real world. We're also focused on products. Uh, products are revenue from customers for solutions. And then it's also consultative and, and with a development service model, and that is getting paid uh, to develop, ideate and develop these solutions for enterprise clients that want to use them internally or in their own client ecosystems. So, I mean, 
I guess at the end of the day, every business model in the world is about your clients, right? Whether or not you're selling jets to the U.S. government or selling gum to a 12-year-old kid at a, at a candy shop. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, we're all serving clients. You know, our job is to identify the multiple different types of clients that we believe we can serve effectively with fantastic results and, and improved systems. And then to execute on that and um, and get that get that client engagement um, and provide that value inside those ecosystems. And presumably, they will repeatedly need your services. Or, well, that, again, it depends on which side of the business that you're talking about. You know, the the product model, you know, is a software as a service, a SaaS model, uh, blockchain as a service, a BAS model, you know, these, these are, these are fairly normal acronyms in, in, the, in, in the world, you know, um, we all pay for office 365 or, you know, um, we use zoom for a community for company communications, right? This is software that we're paying for on a continual basis. And, you know, that company's job is to provide a solution that is attractive enough and sticky enough that we stay there and keep using it, right? Um, that's the challenge of, of any, uh, you know, purveyor of goods. Um, but on the other side of that, you know, there are um, maintenance contracts. You know, there is, there is long-term revenue to the service business as well as the products business. Um, but in, in, in some cases, yes, those will be uh, an ideation contract to go in and, and, and think something through. And then deliver that, and, and you know that's the part that we play. Um, in other cases, it's a, a full platform development, and then you know long-term, you know uh, upgrades and improvements and, and maintenance kind of a contract. So, um, but yeah, the goal is to you know add enough value and 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 enough uh, stickiness to your products that uh, people continue to use them. And so, Lannister has tremendous potential or continuous explosive growth into the foreseeable future. That is the reason that we went the route of going and being a listed publicly traded company. Um, the only, the only reason in our opinion to do that is with a truly scalable, uh, model in a very blue ocean space. Um, you know, going into highly competitive spaces, uh, going into things that are going to take, like a risk management business, as an example, that takes a massive amount of capital and a massive amount of infrastructure and staffing to scale um, was not something that we felt was a good fit for a, a listed company with external stakeholders who are looking for a, a, a solid long-term uh, ROI on, on their investment. And so that belief, that Lannister is uh, a very unique, powerfully scalable um, business that's focused in an extremely blue ocean uh, space that is going to need massive amounts of this exact type of service and products over the next decade to, to, to 20, 30 years is, is the reason that we are um, legally structured the way that we are structured and, and how we are focused on moving forward.